Hi guys and welcome back to season three of The State of It. I'm here with David Murren, uh, Dad. How are you today, Dad? Great to be back for season three when it's been a bit of a while because you've been working so hard on your on your dissertation and uh, so it's really good to be back here. And We've had lots of people obviously asking where did we disappear to that we weren't assassinated or locked up in a black box when you just had to take a pause to be industrious. Well, the adoring fans are going to get their wish. Uh, for we are we are returned after what I think a year, a hiatus of a year, about a maybe year. a little less, nine months or something, a less ish, ish. Yeah. Um. So today the focus is going to be Ukraine and the progression from the initial stages of the war, which is something we looked at a little while ago in season two, and the present situation on the ground and possible predictions for the future. So, Dad, regarding Ukraine. What do you see as the major changes that have happened over the past few months since we last talked about Ukraine that are worthy of note? So I think, obviously, if you just recap the various stages, there was sort of, are the Russians going to invade or not? Um, a, a sort of surprise at the formation of the way the columns operated with the less um, sort of capable units at the front of the columns versus the artillery and tanks in the middle and the back, which completely confused short-term the intelligence assessments of the moment of the of movement. And that meant that when they faced resistance, which wasn't expected according to the intelligence services of Russia when they briefed Putin, suddenly they were in problem because their fighting units were in the wrong part of the column. Obviously, they met with resistance from the Ukrainians and I have to say that's at the stage where Britain has done something fundamental in favour of democracy, which we couldn't have done if we didn't have had Brexit and we didn't have a, a lateral leader who saw the importance of the moment in the form of Boris. He also saw it as a mechanism of his personal survival as his fortunes were down the toilet, essentially standing up for Ukraine. Net-net, whatever sub-detail, it's very representative of a nation with an expanded mindset that has led and dragged America and its other allies, allies to constantly produce and create the weapons needed for Ukraine, always belatedly, but just in time. So I think Britain's role and relationship with Ukraine is quite unique and and has been absolutely critical from the provision of in-laws, drawing in javelins, to the process of HIMARS. What wasn't talked about was we donated brimstone missiles, which the second generation have millimetric radar on them, so you could fire them out of trucks that go 15 miles and they'd fly around the top of the Russian lines, pick up a tank or pick up an artillery piece, grade the importance and, and kill it. And we provided 700 and probably equally as much in the second tranches. Statistics coming back suggest 96% hit targets. That's a huge degradation. And so we saw the Russians make their initial assault. They were halted. One of the key things was the choke points, N-laws, the use of TB2 drones, and also six brigades of independent Ukrainian artillery that we used to bring to bear in the choke points of the Russians. We know we saw withdrawal. And then we saw this retracement and retrenchment back and focus on the Donbass region. And that's when the Russians produced a lot of artillery in field, and they were really pummeling, grinding the Ukrainians down until, again, HIMARS were provided, allowing weapon strikes up to 50 four miles behind the front lines or the launch points. And that changed everything and it opened the way to an offensive we saw in the north and the south, which would produce a critical moment in the Ukrainian conflict. And that conflict was Putin had always entered it with this idea of he could use escalate to de-escalate and the use of a single nuclear weapon to what he thought was pushed back the weak Western governments. And he always thought that was his fallback. 
And I think the Western governments at that stage were somewhat a little you know, complacent about the reality that he felt that strategy offered him. And was, we wrote an awful lot, you know, in Global Forecaster, spun an awful lot of information to key people to accelerate the process of the Christ, right strategic language, which explained if he used a nuclear weapon, that that event would be connected to the old ladder of mutually assured destruction, which kept the Cold War cold. Um, and finally, at the last minute, Jake Sullivan stepped in and said, if you use a nuclear weapon, America will intervene with massive conventional capability against the whole of the Russian forces, which would be not dissimilar to being struck by a sequence of nuclear weapons, forcing the Russians to then use a nuclear escalatory process, and we all went up in a mushroom cloud. That basically linked single use in Ukraine to the ladder which gave peace in the Cold War, and it pushed the nuclear ceiling up. Now, as part of that strategic dialogue, I think Putin demonstrated this asymmetric capability he's been developing for some time, which is attacking the subsea communications and energy nexuses of NATO across the European seas. And it was a demonstration with Nord Stream 2 to blow it up. If you use your conventional force, one of our options is to turn off all your subsea linkages. Now, I think that was real. I don't believe that the conspiracy theory that the Americans did it or the Ukrainians did it is appropriate because it sits within the dialogue of the strategic language, which pushed the nuclear ceiling upwards. And at the same time, we know that in Fars Lane, the, the, the anoraks who watched the submarines come in and out reported an incredible level of activity and submarines and systems not normally seen in the region, which suggested that NATO took the threat to our subsea infrastructure very seriously. So what that did was it pushed the nuclear ceiling high enough that the liberals in America and generally around Europe saw that providing conventional weapons to change the balance of power on the battlefield could be done without triggering a nuclear response. And that's the, those weapons have been trickled in. I described it as the boiling the frog strategy of cooking, cooking Putin slowly enough that by the end of it, he just couldn't act. And that's essentially what has been done. It's a was the most cautious route we could have taken. I think we probably could have been a little bit more adventurous and pushing the boat out earlier and saved a lot more Ukrainian lives than we have. But the net effect is this infusion of Western weapons has completely destroyed the integrity of the Russian armoured formations. And the offensive which started early in April uh, as I explained before, and, and by the way, if you just go to join up Marinations, you're going to pay less than a newspaper a month. You will see we've been two months ahead of every process in Ukraine before it's happened after day five of the invasion. And so one of the things that I highlighted are two key things. One is demographically, Russia is very, very poorly placed. It's contracting. And that means casualties have a disproportionate effect on the psychology of the nation. So the idea that Putin thinks that Russia is like the USSR in the Second World War, can expend lives and keep doing it, is completely, utterly erroneous. In fact, the truth is the other. So this idea of creating kill zones where Russians are drawn into defensive or offensive actions with five to one casualties or three to one casualties is very destructive and has been to the psychology of the Russian army and the state. And I think that's going to produce an outcome that will surprise people. But in the net effect is essentially the Russians... The only offensive they could make was regional places like Barmut and some of the other towns um, where essentially they were limited infantry actions with artillery, very little air support, 
And the net effect was it became kill zones for their own population. And the Ukrainians smartly allowed that to happen, recognizing the degradation that created whilst giving them space to build their offensive capability, which is said to now stand at least nine brigades of armored formations. That's a very, that's three divisions. That's incredibly significant, supplemented now by Western technology. And for the past month or so, the Russian forces have been on the defensive and you know, armies on the offensive and defensive have very different mindsets. So what have we seen? We've seen you know, defensive positions dug all the way along the front, which I'm afraid aren't going to last very long if you're Russian. Um, they look good, but they're not going to stop much. We've seen a very interesting battle going on whereby <clears throat> um, the Ukrainians need air defense capability to umbrella their armored assaults and penetrative gaps when they make make their breach. And so the Russians have been pinning down those air defences by attacking the cities. And the reason why they're pinning them down is the majority of air defence systems were ex-Soviet S-300s and shorter-range systems, but those have been running out of missiles. And the Western systems like NASAMs and Patriots have not been provided the numbers to create the overall coverage. Sorry, Dad, just, a- just to stop you there, that touches on a very interesting point because you discussed a lot of materiel a lot of supply from NATO into Ukraine, a lot of weapons, you named N-laws, HIMARS. But what is the supply looking like into Russia? Are the Chinese supplying weapons? Are the North Koreans giving anything? Are they lacking the support that Ukraine is receiving from NATO? Absolutely. The deep reserve, as it's called, of NATO is not matched by the deep reserve of China or North Korea. You can assume that artillery rounds for their artillery have been flying from North Korea but whatever they've been receiving has been a fraction of the capabilities delivered by NATO to enable Ukraine, a fraction. And we'll come on to the process with China, but China has not been triggered to provide lethal aid. And, you know, they've almost obviously made a strategic decision that the Russians won't survive the coming offensive. And that, But if there's a regime change, it's not to a pro-Western Russia, it's to an even more hardliner Russia with perhaps a better capability to perform because Putin's most vulnerable from the hard right, not from a liberalization towards the West. So do you see a continued lack of support in material and lethal weaponry from the Chinese and North Koreans for towards the Russians? I do because if they were going to if they've made the assessment that the Western offensive would be crushing, they have to get that material in the hands of the Russian army well before the offensive takes place and the risk of a collapse. And I think the Russian army is very fragile as it was in 1917 before its revolution or as the German army was in the summer of 1918 after expending its best troops in the spring offensives. Or, for example, the French army, which had a defensive Maginot line and a a very sort of slow response curve to a front line. Once it was broken, they just morale collapsed in the blitzkrieg. So those three examples are, between them, the best mix of how to assess Russian psychology and capability right now. And I think what we could see is once one or two, I think we'll see probably at least two axes of penetration, maybe three. Once they get through those front lines, the only thing that the Russians can use, and there was a very famous, um, my, one of my favorite German generals of the Second World War was Model. He was absolutely brilliant. And he fought on the Russian front. One of his key elements to surviving Russian assaults was to have a mobile reserve that you used to plug a hole in an assaulting force. But the Russians don't have a mobile reserve. Their armor formations are decimated, and they can't even fight what they've got left in the combined arms operations. 
So they don't have that. What they've done is they put their tactical air force behind the Russian front line with their Ukrainian territory that they've captured. And they've started to use glide bombs. And glide bombs are something which have been in the Western inventory. You sort of lob them with wings and they can go about 40 or 50 kilometers with precision targeting. They've increased their target acquisition response time much faster. Their artillery now is operating with counter-battery fire of three to five minutes. So the targeting kill chain is matching the one the West provides Ukraine with its intelligence assets. So that's the reason why they they feel that that's going to be their counter if there's a breakthrough. But if there's really good air defense systems provided by Patriot, even those, you know, glide bombing, lobbing MiGs are not going to survive or Sukhoi's. So I think the Americans have probably provided more air defense than they're actually letting on. That's an obvious conclusion I'd draw. You discussed two axes of penetration in the coming offensive uh, from Ukraine into Russian-held territory. Do you see the Challenger and Leopard tanks provided by NATO as likely spearheading and being instrumental in those axes of penetrations? Absolutely. I mean, just before we talk about what this penetration looks like, I think right now we're seeing the shaping of the battlefield. Shaping is when you start to alter the psychology of your enemy and put them into a mindset that lets you see an axis of advantage and surprise. And so there's things that we're seeing, we've seen, you know, train derailments in Russian territory, the incursions around Belgrade, which are humiliating for the Russians and require full structures to basically protect the borders when they didn't before. We're seeing a whole host of things like and storm shadow provided by Britain, the first long-term strike capability out to 180 miles means everything in occupied Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, is on the cards. What was little talked about was those two storm shadows that were launched were accompanied by these mauled missiles. Now, America, with whoever it is in charge, and it's not Biden, by the way, and because it's well past the, the sanity point, but whoever's in charge in America has been overly cautious about providing long-range high miles out to 100 miles plus because they're fearful they might be used against Russia. But someone in the Pentagon thought, well, we'll slip these by, and they slipped these mauled missiles, which only came into service you know, maybe six years ago, and you launch them in packs around your primary offensive system, and they confuse and ablate the air defences. By one minute, they look like a missile. The next minute, they look like an aeroplane. And the storm shadows were launched with mauls. So that's really interesting, that much as America at one level says, I won't give you long-range high miles, they're giving mauls, which facilitate storm shadows to work. So there's a lot more in terms of the public perception versus reality going on here. And But going back to your question, yes, I think... If I was in back in 1918, um, and the German army had launched its spring offensives with all the 550,000 released Germans from the Eastern Front at the point of the Russian um, Revolution, they'd put 55 divisions into the field and they had to knock Britain out or the BEF out of the war before the full force of America joined and made that an outcome really difficult. So they were forced into their spring offensives. The spring offensives used their best troops in stormtrooper formations, which made a huge penetration, but not one that created sustained strategic change. And they lost their best troops. And the fabric, in effect, of the army in Germany that was left was actually very weak because it can sometimes be one or two men in a platoon that gets the platoon to fight through their own courage that then transfuses and spreads to everyone else. Without those people, effectiveness dropped. And they were facing tanks. And at the time, their officers, don't worry about the British tanks. You can take your revolver up to the slit of the driver and shoot him in the head. 
And the Germans would look at their officers and go, are you mad? Those things are like porcupines. You can't even get close. And it broke the trust of the German soldier in the trenches who was meant to fight a tank versus their commanders who said, don't worry. And it was called tank terror. So when these tanks arrived in the opening stages of Amiens, these Germans had no way to stop it, even though they'd created the same anti-tank anti ditches that the Russians now have, which is light forward defences, and then basically bloody great trenches that tanks so-called couldn't get across, but they did with fascines, and now we can with bridging equipment, and then a third defensive line. That was exactly what they used in 1918 on the 8th of August in Amiens because the commander of the German region was, in fact, very pro-anti-tank defences and thought how to do it. They didn't work, and the Russians won't work. So if you're a Russian soldier and you're facing this and you have no anti-tank weapon that can knock out a Leopard or a Challenger, you have no air support, your artillery probably disappears in the first 20 minutes of the engagement because it's been pre-located and destroyed by Western capabilities, the net, the net effect is absolute terror and impotence. And I think that they're going to break through the 50-mile 50, 50 barriers of some kind of defense. And once they're in the back, it's all over for the Russians. And the behavior of the Russian army will be very like the French army when the Maginot Line was outflanked. It just collapsed. So I, I expect a somewhat more dramatic outcome from these offensives. And also recognizing that the Ukrainians don't have to go until all their preconditions are met. So they've confused the Russian command structure sufficiently that it's in the wrong positions. They position their forces in a way they know they haven't been detected. All of those things, at any stage, if the Russians can pick them up or concentrate fire, then they just back off and wait again. And they have the advantage of Western intelligence capabilities, which see the battlefield at 100%, pass that information real time and give targets. So this is a very unique combat situation where the, uh, the, the, the opaqueness of the field as far as the Ukrainian forces is very high, and their assessment of where the Russians are is very reliable. And the net effect is when they launch their strike, we can assume it's because the preconditions were met and they'll be successful. We've discussed the land capabilities of both Russia and Ukraine extensively. But for a second, let's look at the Black Sea. Do you see the Russian fleet as still being somewhat muzzled after their their loss of their flagship? Uh, or are they are they a capability that could possibly come in use for the Russians in the coming months in the offensive that you see the Ukrainians will launch? So the problem for the the um the the, the Black Sea fleet is the Dardanelles have been shut to any new Russian forces to replace losses. You, were you surprised by that move? Um no it's within um within the the re legal framework of the process and conflict in the region. So it wasn't outside that construct. Um, it's kind of interesting, and I, I don't really blame the Turks for doing it, A, because it restricts the amount of maritime conflict, because one by one, you know, you, you, attrition will lose your forces, and it prevented the Russians from concentrating their forces on the shores of Ukraine to create localized threats that then they had to put force structures to defend, like Odessa. So no, it was. A, I remember Turkey is a NATO country, so I, I'm not surprised. That's an extremely prudent thing to do. So in terms of the sinking of the Moskva, there's an awful lot of lessons around that. I mean, first of all, it was located by Western intelligence services. Tick, you know, when NATO is at war with Russia, wake up world, uh, much as we don't say so. Um, the word is it wasn't Neptune drones. It was Danish provided harpoons. 
And why did the Moskva not protect itself when it had a complex, multiple, three-layer system, long-range, medium, and close-range, is really interesting. Like the Sheffield in the Falklands Island when it was hit by an exocet, its primary long-range sensors interfered with its communications, so they turned them off to communicate with their command structure. First vulnerability would have been quickly detected by the reconnaissance forces watching and observing the target. And apparently the other two layers just weren't serviceable. So literally, it was a hulk in the water that wasn't combat capable. And that's very reflective of other Russian surface ships because their maintenance cycles have been so neglected. When you say not serviceable, do you mean literally could not be used? 70 or 80% of the missile and gun systems were out of action. We're talking about... That's quite shocking in a war zone. it's, It's really shocking in a war zone. And it shows you just how poorly the whole of the American, the, the Russian military infrastructure really is. There are some exceptions. So right now, you know, Harpoon missiles have pushed the surface ships of the Russian forces a long way from the coast. They are able to squeeze the grain imports and exports and create a long-range blockade in effect and constrain that. And the Ukrainians are now trying to use semi-submersible um They've used speedboats, which you know recently there was an attack, and there's a nice clip on of Twitter of actually been shot um, away from the target. No different from a rubber duck in tar- carrying you know um, uh, explosives when they attack the USS Cole, um, but it, no people on board. So the the Ukrainians are working on semi-submersible systems, which basically have a little periscope. They're just trying to push quite rightly the Russians further back. The one element that is successful is there are kilo-class submarines which are now being moved from Crimea across to the other side on the Russian coast, and they launch many of the Kaliber missiles which come out of the Black Sea region, which are now being used to try and pin down Patriot systems in, in population centres. Hopefully, as from the Russians' perspective, they're not released to create the conditions, preconditions for, for the offensive by the Ukrainians. Let's zoom out for a second. We don't have very long left, but let's zoom out and discuss a major change that's occurred since we last discussed Ukraine, and that is the expansion of NATO to include certain Nordic countries. What's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, if you're Putin and you've gone to war to push your influence right up to the boundaries of where, you know, he would like it to be, which is the flat plane that goes right up to the choke points just below the peninsula of Denmark. It's been an abject failure. And 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 if there was one total failure, it's Finland joining, because it does a couple of things. Finland is now has moved the borders of NATO further forwards, and it means the Baltic is no longer operable for any Russian naval forces. And by the time the Swedes are into, if Erdogan lets go of his grip, and 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 his his issues around it, the whole of the Baltic has become a NATO sea, not accessible to the Russians. And that means St. Petersburg is suddenly accessible in reverse because you now control the seas and you can attack St. Petersburg, which traditionally has been one of the heartlands of, of the Russian world. But the most important strategic shift, and it's absolutely huge, is that there is a in the the, the Russians have a problem with ice in their ports. And the Kola Peninsula, which sits adjacent to Finland, is where they base all of their northern fleet, which operates in the Atlantic. Their ballistic submarines, their SSNs, their surface fleet is in a series of ports in the Kola Peninsula. And there is one road which runs up to the Kola Peninsula to support it, which comes from the south. And it's now so easy for Finland forces to interdict that road 
isolating the Kenola Peninsula, which is now well within range of NATO strike capabilities, indeed wouldn't last five minutes. And the implication is, in the case of a full-on war, Russian naval capability to sustain naval operations in the Atlantic has been reduced to zero. That means they'll lose all their bases, they'll lose their ships. It, it will only be the ships that are at sea that can fight. That means their submarines will have one operational cycle before they wonder where they're going to go. They can't go to the Baltic. They won't be able to go to the Mediterranean. So they have to go halfway around the world to Vladivostok, which is still an open port. And that's the only central place where Russian naval power has freedom to operate. And recently, we saw that demonstration surge by Putin when the, when the Chinese minister was visiting Moscow to show him that submarines could be surged out of Vladivostok and they still had a navy. It's absolutely strategically disastrous for the Russians because one of their core war fighting constructs was they used submarines in the fourth battle of the Atlantic to create leverage on the constriction of reinforcements into NATO. Beyond one patrol cycle, that's now over. And most importantly, in an even bigger shift, if you look at the naval balance of containing the Chinese and you look at 60% of the American force structures focused in the Pacific, well, this means that essentially the other 40% could decamp from the Atlantic and reinforce the Pacific, leave the NATO countries in Europe to police the Northern Atlantic, and the Russians can't fight the region. So the release of naval power into the Pacific because of Finland joining and the threat to the Kona Peninsula has changed the whole global balance of power. And I would argue means that the Chinese are forced like the Japanese before them into an a strike of immense proportions out of nowhere to redress that balance and gain advantage immediately. And that's their only option if they wish to go to war with the West, a totally Pearl Harbor on two steroids attack, which I've outlined in Murray Nations extensively. And on that bombshell, Dad, I think that's all we've got time for today. As ever, thank you very much for your insight, both tactical and strategic, giving lots of wisdom to, uh, to the fans. And we will be back again in episode two of series three. Thank you for listening, guys. David Murren specialises in using the past to predict the future and is an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager and market trader. To date, he's authored three books, Breaking the Code of History, Lies Led by Lions and Now or Never. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmerrin.co.uk, where you can find more on his life, views, and work.